Hello listeners, before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I'm talking with Nina Simon. I am super pumped for this conversation. She's somebody that has reinvented herself many times. Uh, I didn't really know how to introduce herself, but she gave me this incredible one-liner at each professional crossroad. She's managed to disappoint her mother by her decision. A common theme among pathless pathers, people taking unconventional paths, and something you experience when you make changes. Um, You've done a ton of things, Nina, like working at NASA as an engineer, kind of jealous with that as a fellow engineer. designing spy museum exhibits, working in the museum world um, as both a leader of organizations and also just somebody that's super passionate about the space. Um, you have reinvented yourself a couple times in that space and now have left that behind and are focusing on writing crime fiction. You're going to publish a novel in 2023 called Mother Daughter Murder Night, which It's a good title. I'm hooked already. But uh, yeah, Nina lives in Santa Cruz with 20 people, 16 chickens, two trampolines, and one zip line. I'm excited to chat with you today. Nina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. I'm really glad to be here. (laughs) Question we always start out with is, what are the stories and scripts you grew up with as a child? About life around... um, Yeah. Yeah. So what are the stories and scripts you grew up around work? Like, these are the things I am supposed to do as an adult to be seen as a successful person, but they can be life scripts as well. Yeah. Um, So uh, I'm Jewish and my family, you know, there's this generational thing about immigrants, right? Where in my case, it was grandparents come over, um, they try and make a good life for themselves and their kids. And then um, you know, there's kind of this cycle of who are the kids or what are the generations where you try and really toe the line and do what is expected and what are the generations where you're able to flex a little bit. Um, so my parents were quite unusual. My dad's a rock musician. He has literally had the same job since he was 20 years old, which is being in the band Sha Na Na. Um, and so um, had a very radical career in some ways, but in some ways very traditional in that he literally has been in the same job for 50 years. Um, my parents got divorced when I was seven, and that was a real moment when my mom um, realized that she had this real sort of 
um, protective, uh, ambitious gene of feeling like she never wanted to rely on a man, a husband, um, for her financial security, for that of her kids as well. And so um, my parents had joint custody, but my sister and I spent a lot of time with my mom as she built a career as a mother. And so I think that we saw very clearly that work is about independence and creativity, but it's also about independence and freedom in this way that is more primal and more about survival. And I think that um, both my sister and I really were always proud to work. You know, I was, I remember getting my work permit when I was 14 and having a series of awful jobs. One of my favorite questions always to ask people is what's the worst job you've ever had? And I always feel a little bad for people who didn't have jobs dethorning roses as I did or any number of terrible jobs, um, but just was always proud to be working, to be contributing, um, and um, always felt like um, work was something that, again, you know, my dad had gotten this very lucky strike of being creative and having kind of, you know, what is seen as a dream job. But we also, as kids, really saw the ugly side of being in a rock band and um, and saw how my mom kind of being more of the turtle and going for hard work um, and entrepreneurship in her own way um, could also have a lot of independence and joy and success in that. So I think that we saw work and I saw work as something I was excited about. Um, I saw different versions of it, um, but definitely saw that um, it was connected to security and freedom. Did you see yourself as creative growing up? Definitely creative, but um, one of the things that happens when you grow up with a creative as a parent is, at least in my house, whenever I was practicing the piano, um, my dad would, you know, call out, that's the wrong note, you know, and for me, that was very demoralizing. My sister is an amazing musician, um, but for me, my creativity went into writing. So I was always writing poetry um, and was um, really... Uh, stimulated in that way. You know, when I was in high school, I felt like I was a very left brain, right brain person. I was both super jazzed about creative writing and about um, math and science. And I actually decided to study electrical engineering because I felt like, you know what, reading and writing is something I'm always going to do. But I'm pretty sure the only way I'm ever going to learn how to actually build stuff is if I go to engineering school. But it was like, you know, a razor thin margin of that decision for me. Yeah, and you ended up at NASA. So when you were leaving college, did you see yourself as like, this is my path? I mean, I feel like a big thing in our culture is this sort of kind of a delusion that we think we need to solve the path at 23. Uh, How are you thinking about life? Yeah, you know, actually, while I was in college, I um, spent a summer living in this really wild place, this farm in Minnesota that was an unschool. So there were kids there who... Um, learned by doing and with no adult instruction. Actually, the adults, they were quite militant about like, even I remember once a six-year-old came up to me, I was playing solitaire and asked how to play. And I was showing her the rules. And this adult was like, don't teach her how to do it. You know, she can figure out. I'm like, okay, that seems a little extreme. But, (laughs) um, But I was always fascinated by learning outside of compulsory environments. Um, And it's actually one of the reasons I ended up in museums. But yeah, when I first went to engineering school, I was a great student. And you know, when you're a good student, you get these messages sent back to you again and again. You should go to graduate school. You should take this internship, da-da-da-da. And I kept doing that. And every summer I had an engineering job that didn't quite feel right. Um, When I was in high school, I used to say I wanted to design pinball machines because it's kind of this beautiful combination of like, 
creativity, storytelling, engineering, it's all in this box. And um, But it turns out that nobody really designs, especially, you know, non-computer-based pinball machines anymore. And um, and that every engineering job I got, it didn't have that combination. Um, and so I thought NASA was my dream. Certainly when I was a little kid, it was my dream. And then pretty much immediately when I got there, Paul, I realized I hated it. And actually, you know, I was in D.C., like, living the dream. You know, I graduated from college early, went right to this job at NASA, and I was doing math in this, like, room with no windows, and I just hated it. And on the weekends, I was volunteering at this children's museum making puppet shows about uh, big math concepts like infinity, and I loved it. And so I quit my NASA job to take this, like, $5 an hour job at this children's museum, which, again— first of many choices where my parents were like, oh my God, what is our child doing? Um, and uh, But I really felt like, um, for me, the joy of math and science is about the wildness and the weirdness and the creativity in it. And I just didn't experience that in my work world. What's a little bit weird is my mom worked for Disney when I was a kid and we lived right down the road from Disney Studios. And I think that if at some point I had stepped off the path a little bit to do an internship with Imagineering, I think I would have stayed. Um, and I think that that would have been the right kind of engineering for me. But there's some reason, I don't know if it's about my mom having worked there or what, that I never went to the Imagineering or theme park world. Um, and um, and I'm grateful for the path I've had, but I often think, oh, there. I just didn't know, to what you're saying about that fallacy of knowing what you want, you also just don't know what's out there. And I think that I think I thought I was making a good try at figuring out where are the creative quirks of engineering. Um, and I never made it to a few places where I think maybe I could have really found fulfillment. It's such a hard thing. I, for me, engineering was the same. I did three different internships and decided I didn't want to do any of those each time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was still flailing like 10 years later, like job to job. But I think Nobody designs the pinball machine is almost a principle to take away from that. Like engineering, you'd probably be like designing the spring on the puller for like a product launch like three years from now. That's like the reality of an engineering job. And like and I was in industrial. NASA. <laughs> At NASA, it's like you're you're designing like the circuit on the thing that might go on a payload in ten years if our work our deal with the Chinese for satellites works. Yeah, you know it's interesting though about the like fallacy of you're going to find the job because while I was in engineering school by day, I was a slam poet by night, and so I was spending a lot of time while I was in college with people who were artists who had really shitty day jobs, and I got to see also what it was like to have this thing that you were the most passionate about not be your job. And while I wasn't sure that that was the world I wanted, I definitely saw both versions. And so it wasn't like I only saw, you know, job equals fulfillment. I was curious, though, if I could find that in some way. And and to a large extent, I did for a long time in museums. Yeah, I've, I've seen that pretty often, too. Like, it's very hard to make your passion your job, especially if you're aiming directly at it. Some people can sort of stumble upon it and stay in a space in which they're able to generate money from their activity for a certain amount of time, but it never quite lasts. Talk to me about like how you've thought about that and how that's changed over time in terms of like, okay, does the thing I'm most passionate about need to be the center of my life or how do I structure that? Yeah, I think that um, I'm one of those people who really needs 
some people need balance sort of over a year or over a month. I almost on a daily basis, I need to exercise. I need to be creative. I need to, you know, be doing something um, that I feel is purposeful and with people. And so I think that there have been times in my life where my job has given me most or all of those things. And then there have been times where it didn't. And I think that I never assumed um, that if my job wasn't giving me all those things that I couldn't, you know, find those elsewhere. And so, for example, you know, when I first started working in museums, poetry was a big part of my life. But because I had um, that had been my balancer against engineering. And as soon as I was designing exhibits, as soon as I was doing creative work in museums, poetry became much less part of my life because I was having that creative fulfillment at work. Um, and so I think that there have been times where it's all been at work. But I'll also say um, I didn't necessarily presume that those were better times or better jobs than the times when I had a job that only really scratched one of those itches. Um, and so I think that, you know, I feel like for me it's about how do I pursue a life or opportunities so that on a daily basis I'm getting to do the things that fulfill me as opposed to thinking all those have to come in this bucket or that bucket or that kind of thing. Yeah, so many people start with like the job is like the yeah. center of life and then try to design their life downstream from that. It seems like you had this sense from an early age of like, okay, I have all this space, which is my life. Maybe I'll fit a job into that. Is that like how you were actually thinking about it? Or is that how it just your natural tendencies brought you into that? That sounds great. Um, I think that, um, you know, I don't know if you're into the Enneagram at all, but I'm an Enneagram 7, which is like the golden retriever, like chasing the tennis ball, you know, interested in a lot of different things. So I think that I've always um, both pursued a diversity and novelty in my life. And I also have always been really hard line about if something, if a job in particular is not working for me, I am leaving and I'm leaving quickly. I'm not agonizing about that. And I've done that a few times. Um, and so even, you know, when I left engineering and shifted into museums, I did it because I was curious about these creative spaces. I, you know, there's this idea of like no one ever failed museum, that they could be really places for free choice learning. But the first year I worked in museums, I worked in like six different museums. And my strategy was I'd go to a place, I'd say, hey, I'll volunteer for you for free or do an internship for three months. But then at three months, we're going to talk about whether you're going to pay me or not. And sometimes those were really great fits and I did end up working there and getting paid. Sometimes they were bad fits and I just left, you know, but I was just like, I want to explore different sizes. I want to explore what's it like to look for a mentor to work for versus a place with values that I care about. You know, like I just wanted to experiment with a lot of different things. And I didn't feel like I, I think I early on just valued my own freedom so strongly that I didn't feel I owed any company some certain amount of my time um, before there could be a decision about making a different choice. I think also, uh, paradoxically, museums are one of those career or industries that's very hard to break into. And because it was hard, you know, I think for some people, if you get into a hard to break into environment, you feel like, oh my God, I got to keep this job no matter what, even if it sucks. But for me, it was sort of like, it's already impossible. So I might as well just try and figure out like, what what's good here and 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 be really aggressive when I see something that I do think might be the right fit. That's amazing. How are you thinking about money? Um, there's a privilege side to this and a choices side to this. So the privilege side of it is my parents had the commitment that they were going to make sure that um, my sister and I could go through undergrad debt free. 
which was amazing and I feel like is a huge gift. And then we also, and I had the commitment that I'm going to be working as soon as possible and I'm not going to ask you for any more money after that. You know, no phone bills, no rent, no nothing. And um, and so I always have lived very cheaply and I think that, you know, the single biggest decision I made that has changed my whole career is meeting my husband when I was 20 years old and us deciding, you know, that we were going to be together. He, at the time, was 25. He was living in this group house um, where it's like everybody is paying almost nothing for rent in this terrible house. I mean, it was just like bananas. But we both really had this sense that our professional freedom, he was an entrepreneur. He taught me about entrepreneurship. But that being able to do what we wanted to do, being able to leave when we needed to leave, mattered more than almost anything else. And so we have always, first implicitly and now very explicitly, said we are going to fully live, including saving, including giving away money, on one salary. And at any given time, one of us needs to be not necessarily stable, but one of us needs to have a paycheck that's coming in. And we're going to trade off who that is. And we are going to do that so that we can be super psyched to support each other when he wants to start a business and it's going to take a few years to get off the ground, or I want to write a book and I don't know what's going to happen with that. And we've done that multiple times over 20 years and um, and lived extremely cheaply the whole time. And um, it's like the greatest gift we give each other as a couple and, and a choice for ourselves about money. I love that. Uh, me and my wife have sort of set up a similar way of orienting. And it's interesting how common the like one income rule is in like two, I don't even know what to say, double weirdo couples instead of double income. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, well, it's really it's, more like the one health insurance rule is kind of how we think about it because, I mean, and frankly, also the fact that I'm younger and, than him and also my experience with my mom being, you know, um, thrust into being a, um, a home, you know, thrust into making money um, in a somewhat un- unexpected manner means I've always been really competitive about wanting to be the one or wanting to, you know, and we've we've yeah. had some failures, but we've also had some successes that have um, really just made this possible and also um, just continuing to live really cheaply. You said you're thinking about that explicitly. Can you say a little bit more about what that means? Is that like putting numbers down? Like how are you defining all this? Yeah, so... Um, Years ago, so, you know, I've always been really professionally ambitious, but I was always also nervous that, like, he's professionally ambitious, too. And how do you decide who takes, whose who's thing takes precedence? And when I was in my maybe mid-20s, so, you know, I started working, doing some exhibit design, and then I started this blog in the museum industry that became the biggest blog in the museum industry. And it sparked this freelance career that was awesome in my later 20s. And during that time, while I was freelancing, I met this superpower couple um, in the arts world, and they—I was like, "How do you decide who's jo- where to go?" Because th- these, this couple, both of them, each of them were taking jobs running bigger and bigger museums. And this woman said to me, my husband Tom and I—her name's Madeline Grzynski, they She said, "You know, we've made a deal. We trade off whose turn it is." And when I, you know, and we've done it four times and we've done it, you know, each time it's been five to 10 years. And I was just like, holy shit, these people have this together and just got interested in this idea of um, how can we 
support each other. And especially, I mean, you're about to have a kid. I have a nine-year-old. You know, how do I as the woman not become the de facto opt-outer? And in fact, in our case, you know, I had just become a CEO um, a year before we decided to have a kid. And my husband had this startup that was struggling at that time. So we decided he was going to be the lead caregiver. And, um, you know, I went back to work after 10 days after having my daughter super excited to do it, felt super privileged to do it, and um, and it, and it felt super grateful that he was making that choice. And I think that, so I think there's also, I think in any heterosexual couple, there does have to be some constant vigilance about like, hey, are we not sliding into, you know, like oppressive uh, systems here? And, um, and so I think that that has also always been a driver. And being the younger one and getting together with him when I was like, new to working and he already had this startup just made it really set a fire under me of wanting to be uh an equal in that partnership yeah one thing i i think a lot about and we talk about is not defining it solely on economic terms so similarly we try just not to spend a lot which gives which lets us price our freedom at a higher rate um, such that if we do want to work on things that matter to us, maybe that won't be economically um, valued. We can sort of like lean into those and like those things matter to me so much. And like it, yeah. it would kill me if like my spouse didn't have like her art and she didn't have the energy to do that. Yeah. Whether she'll make money or not um, is who knows. But yeah. it's not like yeah. the goal. There's like intrinsic value in things in and of themselves. How do you how do you think about that? Like you're writing a book right now. Like books are like impossible to think about selling. I wrote a book in 2021, um, and I I had no idea. Like I was self publishing. I had no idea like how much it would sell or not sell. Um, I basically projected like zero sales, and it did better yeah. than that. So well, that's good. Um, yeah, lucked out. Well, so. Yeah, so you know, I um, there's two very different versions of that story because um, so I mentioned you know when I was 25, 26, I started this blog museum 2.0 that created a consulting career that I didn't know I could have. Um, you know, I was working as an exhibit designer. I thought my goal was to become an exhibit designer at bigger and bigger museums, and then I started writing this blog about participatory culture and like what is the story of Web 2.0 as applied to cultural spaces, not what's happening online, but what would it look like if a museum was operating the way that a Wikipedia works or, you know, a Twitter works or whatever that might be. And um, and suddenly people were calling me and treating me as this expert and flying me all over the world to do consulting. And so out of that, I wrote two books, actually, um, that I self-published. And in that case, it's like, I really saw that the blog had already been a huge lead generator for a very successful consulting business. And I figured, um, and I'd heard from a lot of people who were like, hey, um, I love your ideas. I love your blog, but um, my boss is never going to read a blog. Um, And so can you do a book? And so I knew there was sort of a market. um, And and I also decided, actually, in the case of those two books, to make them totally available for free online as well, Um, you know, which I'd been really inspired by. Cory Doctorow and Clay Shirky and some of those ideas around, you know, um, the the power of things that are free. And so I was selling paperbacks and making these books available for free online. And I made a shitload of money. I couldn't believe it. And um, and so, like, I had that experience with self-publishing and seeing how it was a virtuous thing with consulting. 
On the other hand, uh, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I stopped consulting because I felt like when consulting, people always want to talk about the thing that you're no longer interested in. Like, you know, you you publish <laughs> yeah. a book, like you finish a book, you're so sick of it at that moment. And then you have to spend like the next few years being that person. The second book I wrote, The Art of Relevance, I love that book, but I wrote it super fast. I thought it was something I was just sort of curious about. And then it became like my thing for years and it drove me nuts. And um, so... Um, so, um, I, I think that, um, I saw that a book could be financially advantageous if it was part of a package of a brand, a consultant, you know, another product, um, speaking, I did a lot of speaking. Um, and so that was financially actually a pretty safe bet. And it was, uh, building on what I was doing. The book I am writing now, completely different story. Um, I, uh, so I was a CEO for 10 years. Um, and in late 2020, my mom got super sick. Um, she, uh, has a form of terminal cancer. She's still alive, which is great. And she's actually doing pretty well. But at the time it was like, holy shit. It was, for me, it was that wake up moment, um, where I, for the first time in my life, didn't want to put work first. I mean, I had a baby and I was psyched to get back to work. But when my mom got sick, I was, I was just pissed. Off. I, I went to work apathetic. You know, I was CEO of this growing startup. It was terrible. Like, and I just knew I needed to leave, um, both because I wanted to focus on my mom and it just put into like sharp contrast and clarity. Like this is not what I want to be doing right now. I feel like that's true for a lot of people, right? That a health crisis, whether it's their own or somebody else's is a wake up call. And people talk about it with babies, but I didn't feel with the baby. I was like, you take care of this crying thing. I will go to work and I will be a great partner and co-parent but like this is not changing my life <laughs> but but my mom's health really changed my life and um and so in the wake of that um while my mom was sick um so my husband was like look you've been the primary wage earner for the last 10 years like yeah you're due you get this time and i felt so much guilt and so much shame about it i felt like on the one hand i was proud to be helping my mom but every time i like made a nice dinner and felt a little proud about it, this other part of my brain would be like, this doesn't matter. Like anybody can make dinner. Like you're, you're, you're achieving nothing right now. And I really had to like deprogram a lot of the messaging about like, it only counts if you're doing things that move things in the world or whatever. Um, but, um, I, so I started writing that book uh, this crime fiction book as a way to connect with my mom. Um, she and I both always loved murder mysteries. And when she was really sick, we needed something to talk about that wasn't cancer. And so I was like, well, what if we made up a story about a detective who was like you? And I would write these chapters while she was sleeping and then she would read them. And it was just this really sweet connection for us. And it was also a way for me to do something that was so transparently not in the marketplace, like so deeply creative and weird and just for me and her that it kind of helped me with some of that deprogramming and then the irony paul is that a year after i finished the first draft we sold that book uh, my agent and i to harper collins for more money than i've ever made in a two-year period and so it was like this weird thing where i had spent a year deprogramming myself and telling myself this is an unusual time in your life you're going to do this thing and you get to care for others and you're going to write this book and you're just doing this thing and it's not going to be rewarded by the marketplace. And then suddenly it sold for a lot of money. And so now I'm in this weird place of like, huh, 
maybe that was not an anomalous uh, period. Maybe this is the next phase for me. And it's even weird to be, to have the externality of the market response. Um, I, I'm very sensitive to the fact that, huh, like, why is that driving my next pet? Like, is that, is that, is that, like, it, it just as it wasn't a good reason, it would, you know, it was fine to write the book not thinking it was going to make money. Now that I could make some money writing fiction, like, is that a good or bad reason to keep pursuing it? So uh, that's kind of a long answer around the book thing, but it's been a very confusing uh, experience around this fiction book in particular because I went into it for one purpose and it um, is now finding a life beyond that purpose. So many uh, so many questions here. <laughs> I, I love this so much. I think um, I sense for many people there is this like other if you're able to like disconnect from like the person you are, there is this like sort of hidden unknown path. But to do that, yeah. you sort of need to lean against everything that makes sense, right? Cool. And you describe like the pain of doing that, the, that other voice that's like, "You're an idiot. What are you doing?" Yeah. Um, how do you? How did you soften your attachment to that? To that voice. I mean, my mom and I used to joke about it that it's like, this is a good thing cancer did. And we used to joke about like, oh, you told your board you quit your job because you have to take care of me. But like, really, you need to take care of you. Like you're, you know, you're burned out and like you, you need this. And, um, and so we used it like, what a weird thing to play the cancer card to give yourself permission to, yeah, to do these things. So I think that that was a big part of it was knowing that I was doing something that was, you know, anytime I got too far down that road, I could always say to myself, wait, you're doing something that is unassailably good, which is helping your mom during this hard time. And but that's a much more simple story than what was actually happening, because, you know, if you talk to my husband, he's all he's thrilled about this writing thing because he's like, you're so much nicer than you were before. You're making great dinners every night. Like, you're really present for us in a way you weren't for a long time. I also am noticing, like, I have a lot more friendships, deep friendships than I used to. And it's not because I love these people more. It's because I have more time. Like, if you need a ride to the airport, now I can give you a ride to the airport. Let me tell you, I was not giving anybody a ride to the airport when I was a CEO, you know? And so I think that the permission came from this very clear thing of my mom having cancer but that also became an on-ramp to find more and more reasons to give myself permission and also just to feel less uh, less embarrassed. I remember, you know, when I was first doing this, um, I talked to a colleague, an old colleague in the museum world, um, and um, and I was telling him about what I was doing, and he said, so are you writing this novel, like, ironically? And I was like, no, it's not. Like, this is my life now, you know? And so I don't think, I think, even, I don't think you could write a book ironically. That would take a tremendous amount of effort. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that readers would not respond well to that. But even, like, I've been really intentional in not hiding how my life, or once I got comfortable with it, starting, like, being explicit on Twitter that, like, I'm not trying to still be this person, you know? I get a lot of keynote requests still in the museum world, and I just say no, and I send them to other great people. And so I feel like also this element of, like, trying to not be attached. Because I think also maybe it goes with the, like, freedom to leave thing. I've never wanted to feel so attached to a job or a version of myself that I couldn't 
feel good about chucking it. You know, like when I ran this museum, I always had in my mind, I can't stay for more than 10 years. And I left after eight. And I thought that was about right because I felt like when you start to stay too long, you feel like the organization is you and 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 vice versa and without and you start to clutch onto it in this way that feels um, unhealthy for both you and the organization. And maybe not everybody would feel this way. I certainly have mentors who I really respect who've worked at the same place and built it and built it for decades. But I think for me, there's a sense that of of non-attachment that like don't take yourself so seriously. Um, and and I think a lot of that comes from watching my dad like. My dad, um, his, you know, his rock band, the pinnacle of his career, the biggest crowds they ever played in front of was when he was like 22, 23 years old. And I saw how like in my lifetime, the crowds got smaller and the venues, you know, changed and there were fewer dates. And um, it's really hard to hold on to a strong sense of yourself if you're if you are um, if you've had, if you feel like your best days are behind you, and I'm not saying that my dad necessarily feels that way, but I think that I have always been resistant to um, put painting myself into a corner where I feel like I have to keep doing this to keep being seen as valuable or worthwhile or whatever that might be. Yeah, it's I've experienced similar emotions. I w- I was a strategy consultant in New York and Boston and very impressive on paper, but felt very empty inside. And I walked away, I freelanced for a little, and then I sort of like just stopped trying to make money for like a year, lived on extremely low amounts of money. And I felt so bad. Um, And this is the Uh thing that I've tried to talk about in my book, which is that like, you might actually feel terrible by like mm. taking a new path, uh, but it mm. might also be worth it. Um, a thing for me was just like I think I had this just like deep sense that like I was on a path, even though I couldn't convince anyone, I couldn't tell anyone I was on the right direction, um, and I sort of hid from the world um, in a mm. similar way. But right. would, did you have something similar in? multiple of your reinventions it's like this deep sense of like even if i think it's stupid rationally i still need to keep going on this path i think um you know you said this line that i gave you in the very beginning about you know making choices to disappoint my mother um which is not in on uh on a human level true my mom is incredibly proud of me and loves me um deeply and i think that i since i was very young have made some choices that were not the right choice. And so I think that that almost is pre-insulating. You know, um, when we got married, like, uh, you know, my husband and I left living in downtown Washington. We Even when we lived in downtown Washington, D.C., we lived in these weird houses with 10 people. Then we moved out to these cabins in the wood off the grids in Santa Cruz Mountains. And, like, by the time we were ready to get married, I mean— we um, we self-officiated. We did seven weddings over seven weekends. So, like, people could—we set up this website. You could come to the weekend that you wanted to come to because we wanted to have a small wedding but invite everybody. And so, like, there are so many incidents in my life. And my husband is—he's a huge iconoclast. I mean, I will never forget, like, when he was young and I was younger, you know, he was in some MIT 30 under 30 tech review thing. 
And he shows up to this event where everybody else is wearing a suit, and he's wearing these ripped jeans of his ex-girlfriends and this big beard and long hair and a cowboy hat. And I, there was a part of me, like this middle-class Jewish girl part that was just like, oh my God, I could never do that. That's so embarrassing. But he was like, you know, all the people who wanted to talk to me knew who I was, and the people who didn't want to talk to me, I didn't want to talk to them either. And I think that being with a partner who has that way of looking at life and a lot of the choices we've made, it's just like, we've pre-qualified to our families that like we're doing weird shit. And and frankly, we also had some real successes on paper. You know, I was the Santa Cruz County Chamber of Commerce Woman of the Year, you know, one year. I mean, so I think that there have been enough of those girls from like from establishment to feel like the balancer. I think it would be much scarier. Um, and I have artist friends who I really admire who have not had that. Like, you know, when I was in my late 20s, I was kind of an it person in the museum world. It's like you stumble on that kind of luck. It's like you can't um, like if you're not going to choose to use your success to then screw up and take some risks, then you're then you are like way more cowardly than somebody who has never hit it. Like, you know, once once somebody gives you a weird plaque that you don't know what to do with in your house, like. After that point, you should be taking some risks, I think. Um, and so I guess that I didn't feel, I always felt like I was choosing uh, both that I was choosing from a place of confidence because I had had success in the past, but also I was choosing, you know, my own freedom to exp- like my own weird life over anybody else's idea of what it should be. I love this so much. Like, I feel like my brain works very much the same. It's like, well, I succeeded. I might as well blow it up now. Like, yeah. But as you must know, this is not a common, commonly held orientation toward the world. Right. Like, have you ever successfully convinced anyone this is a better way to look at things? I don't think I've ever tried. You know, it's interesting you yeah, say that. Yeah, I don't really like, try either. <laughs> like, you know, like I'm a vegetarian. I live off the grid. I shit in buckets. Like, and I have spent 20 years trying to convince, or not even, I stopped trying a long time ago. Like, I, I, the weirder the choices I make are, the more uh, I feel like um, there's no reason to try. Because, A, you know, I have a lot of friends who love me who are much more uh, conventional and so they get to come to our weird home and whatever, and they see that this is a loving, weird choice. Um, and uh, But I don't presume, I guess what I care about and what I try to convince my friends to do is to not do things that they hate and or not do things that they feel they must. And I, I always will remember this one couple I used to rock climb with who he really wanted to start a business, but he felt like his um, wife and he... They were just too risk averse um, to for him to do this thing he really wanted to do, and I I, I still remember that even though I, I don't even remember his wife's name today, because I just remember how awful that felt when I heard it and how I felt like oh my gosh that that's not that's not okay with me, um, and and that um, would feel very small, and so I think that I want to convince people to live their big wild lives whatever that might mean for them um and um and not to live this particular weird life that i'm living i love it so i've done a ton of like thinking and writing and 
conversations around work and people have these strong work scripts, but people have even stronger scripts about how you should realign your life with a traditional path as soon as you have kids. What do you you know about this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, this also, this has been a a path. uh, My husband and I have been on an unusual path in this regard for a long time. And it started out, we always felt that every stage of life at which the conventional theory is that you should um, separate yourself um, from community, particularly from your friends, we felt like was a time to double down. So, you know, a lot of people, it's like once you get serious with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you move in together away from other people. We wanted to live in group houses with each other as a couple. A lot of people, when you get married, you buy your own house away from people. We bought this compound where there's, you know, 20 people living in these different cabins. Um, we, you know, we had a kid um, and we we knew we were going to be a one and done couple. Um, I feel like I really respect my friends who have a lot of kids and um, holy shit, is that a lot of work? And does that not allow you to at least be the kind of independent people we want to be? And um, and we like to take the philosophy about kids that we take with dogs on this property, which is you have one that you're responsible for at night, but during the day they can all run around with each other. So um, there are a bunch of families here. My, my daughter goes to regular school, uh, public school, but after school, you know, she is hanging out with the kids who are two to ten who live here. Um, there's a, right now there's six of them. It changes from time to time. And then the most radical choice we made last year. So we live in a 350 square foot cabin. Uh, it's one room and there's a separate building that's our kitchen. And for the first seven or eight years of my daughter's life, she lived in that room with us. We slept in the loft. She slept downstairs. And then, and we always said, oh, we got to build a, a, a bedroom for her. But it kind of always felt like complicated, expensive, a lot of different things. And um, and she was happy to be with us. And so fine. And so, but right around when she started to get close to eight years old, she wanted her own room. Great. We wanted her. We also wanted our own room. And um, And a two-bedroom cabin right next door uh, opened up. The family that lived there moved out. And we looked, we talked to a couple families and it didn't work out. And then my best friend, who is a 26-year-old uh, math and health teacher, high school teacher, she was like, gosh, Nina, I would really love to move up there, but I know you want families. It's a two-bedroom, da-da-da-da. So my friend rented that cabin, and the second bedroom is my daughter's. So we have this sort of extended household with my friend where my daughter's bedroom is over there. She gets up in the morning when her alarm goes off. She gets dressed. She comes over here for breakfast. Like, she's very clear. This is her house, you know, with us, but she sleeps over there. Um, My best friend has a cat. She loves sleeping with the cat. They sometimes have, like, naked dance parties in the house. Like, it's really sweet for her to have another adult in her life. So we have made some unusual choices. And again, like, we have a phenomenal kid. Like, she, you know... um, is doing great. And so I think that anytime, like my parents have been like, hmm, like even we named our kid Rocket. And I remember when we were in the hospital and you signed that thing, we were just like, they're going to just let us do this. <laughs> like, um, but we wanted a name that was unusual, but easy to spell and <laughs> pronounce. And um, and so there've been a lot of things like that. She gets a lot of clothes at clothing swaps. Like she dresses totally wild in her own way, you know, and anytime that sometimes even I'll, it falls in for me sometimes where I'm like, gosh, could you brush your hair? Cause it's 
picture day. And, um, you know, and those feelings come into my head. And then I'm like, she shows up on picture day and she's wearing like 87 different green items because that's what she wants to do for picture day. And it's like, you're doing awesome. And uh, I think also the other thing about the traditional path is people cling to it from the safety perspective. But at least, I don't know, the people who most... uh push that on me are my or or where I get that most subtly are my parents and as they have had friends whose kids have gotten married or had kids they're just seeing how we're a loving family that's um raising a great kid and that that matters more than a lot of other bs like even you know we don't really do screen time and at first my mom was like well how is she gonna learn to I'm like I'm pretty sure she's gonna have plenty of access to screens <laughs> And now, of course, yeah, my mom's like, oh, she's so great at talking to people and engaging people. And I see these other kids and it's sad, you know. So I think that um, we, yeah, we've never been uncomfortable doing, I, I think we live in a pretty principled way. Like we think all the way down about what matters to us. And then we're pretty comfortable even if that doesn't fit uh, what others do. That said, there have been a lot of hacks along the way. You know, when I was pregnant, I was running this museum and we decided that we wanted to know the gender, but um, we actually decided that my husband would learn the gender and I wouldn't because every single day, like volunteers, visitors, old ladies, donors were saying to me, oh, you know, when are you due? What are you having? And I wanted to be able to say, I don't know, to just like shut down any bullshit conversation about their weird <laughs> ideas about having a girl or having a boy. So definitely like there are ways that we played with the traditional thing to kind of get out of it. Um, and whereas like a really strong, like a more iconoclastic person would be like, screw you. I, you know, I'm just not going to engage on this. Yeah, it's such a subtle balance of like just boldly going against the default versus like actually just putting in that deep thinking around what you actually want. Like the way right. I think about it is like, okay, I'm not like rejecting a traditional job. What I'm doing is starting with like the principle of like, okay, I want to be connected and feel alive generally in my life. Can these different ways of structuring work fit into that? Right. Yeah. And sort of flip it on its head and like, from that point of view, I don't really care what other pe people do. I just find that a lot of people aren't really thinking that deeply about how they're structuring their life. Sure. But it, I mean, it can also be deeply annoying, though, right? You, like, yeah. Oh, we're very annoying people. Yeah. This yeah, is this yeah. is a home for people like us, though, on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> My husband's one of those people who can't really sleep easily with other people. And according to him, 10% of people just really need their own bed. <laughs> and um, we spent years arguing about this. And even I would, like, fall back on these, like... This is what people do. And he's like, well, we're not like other I'm like, okay, but could we be like other people in this one way? You know, and king, we eventually found a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. This is the strategy, king size bed. We went for Tempur Pedic, was our but before that strategy, there was the I sleep on a bed and you sleep on the floor strategy. I sleep on a bed, you sleep <laughs> on the roof. I mean, we had many different strategies before the Tempur Pedic queen size bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm only saying king size bed because we actually went through this debate. Like, I think my wife is one of these people that just like <laughs> um, can't be around other people while she's yeah. sleeping. But it yeah. worked. Yeah, King, like yeah. enough space. But um, yeah, what do you know about um, like w what are some of the like meta lessons you've learned about just like reinventing yourself, rethinking your path? Like, um, are you better at it now? 
Hmm. I think that, am I better at it now? I think that I have gotten better at identifying when I need to leave. Um, I think that there's a lot, you know, that's a place where I think there's some very confusing messages, particularly in kind of the startup world around, you know, do you need to stick it out at all costs because that's how you break through? Or do you need to fail fast and move on and do something different, you know? And so I think that I've gotten better at figuring out, at least for myself, what that looks like. I think that I have gotten more comfortably reckless about my own reputation, um, which has been like a pleasure because I think that for years I felt not so much that I was like carefully constructing it, but that I was very like mindful about everything I posted, everything I said, what did I wear to conferences? I it's funny because I'm somebody who I don't wear makeup. I don't I'm not very into clothes. But like if I have to give a keynote at a conference, I get like in this weird loop about like I want to be myself. You know, I want to kind of say fuck you to the conventions, but I don't want anybody to be shut off to buy my message just because they don't like that I'm wearing a T-shirt. You know, like and I think that's particularly strong for women around appearance. Oh, yeah, um, and so I think that some of that stuff has um, been tricky and frankly it's just a little easier as you get older and people care less about what you look like um but um i think that i actually you know paul i really i feel like um so in 2017 i opened this public plaza project uh, in downtown santa cruz that was attached to this museum i ran you know it was like this five million dollar project it took many years it still exists and i think that um this sounds very uh, or, or I get it about sort of um, colonizing space, like like building a place in downtown Santa Cruz that exists that I made, where it is a zero to one and it's physical, it's concrete, and I can bike by there and see it. It's like after that, it's sort of like, I'm good. I made this thing. And I felt the same way about the first book. It's like, this is a thing, and it is beyond me, and other people are engaging with it. And I think that... Um, a couple of those go a very long way to feeling some solid, solid sense of I'm good even if I'm throwing away this job after X amount of time. I'm good even if I'm walking away from a startup I started just a couple years ago so I can help my mom. And I, I think that those concrete uh, objects almost become totemic um, as these um, things that you can rest on when everything else is ephemeral and is day to day. And so... Um, one of my closest friends, somebody I absolutely love, I think has really struggled because it's like those markers. Even I got married pretty young. You know, I think some of those, I have a kid, I have a home, you know, those things are quite traditional in a lot of ways, but they go a long way for me to giving me the comfort to um, make many other choices and to feel like there still are these things that I could rest on that both make me feel comfortable, but also are kind of traditional markers that are legit. It's such a powerful frame. I think letting go of the, it seems like you're really good or have developed the capacity of letting go instead of sort of letting the next chapter emerge. And I, I sense like, I almost sense this could be a powerful thing for you. Like there's a whole generation of people who overly define their lives around work and are have enormous wisdom, but don't know how to shift into a new mode to share it. Um, and I, I just sense that culturally now. And I, I do right. wonder um, how we sort of like unlock that. Um, yeah. It's a, yeah. it's a big question. 
Yeah, and I think also, you know, for me, it was blogging, but for, you know, podcasting, there's different practices. I think doing something where I was creatively delivering imperfect product a couple times a week and doing that for just years and, and like learning out loud in public on the Internet, which I think actually has gotten much scarier now than it was even 10 years ago in terms of how quickly, you know, an imperfect um, thing can really uh, be taken uh, badly. Um, but I think that that experimentation out loud is kind of like a small way to keep exploring. And for some people, it might be cooking meals that don't quite land or like making, you know, crocheting lumpy things or whatever. But I think that like daily practice with um, imperfection, failure, struggle. I've also always been an athlete who's really been into like stupidly hard sports. And one of the reasons I like it is like if you're choosing at seven in the morning on a freezing day to like, I don't know, carry 50 pound sandbags through the ocean and, um, you know, do burpees with them. Like, it is clearly only your choice that is making you do Like, nobody is making you do this. Um, there's no reason to do it. But I feel like it conditioned me a little bit to like, A, I can give up when I need to give up. But B, I mean, life can't be that hard if I can do this weird hard thing. Like, um, and um, And how hard could that meeting be if you like... I don't know, carried some guy on your back for a mile. I don't know. So I feel like finding ways to practice doing things that are hard or imperfect or failing um, and just being showing yourself again and again that nobody dies when you do that. Like nothing, you know, yeah, unless you're, you know, I listened to your episode with the the doctor. Like unless you're a doctor, like for the most part, like, Failure is something that you can learn from and that many of us don't really want to learn from. And so, um, like, aggressively pursuing that has been something that I think helps support that. wanted to ask you about this thing you sent me before, the fiction that we have one story about the path that brought us to this moment. I think this is a hard tendency to avoid because people ask, what's your story? How did you arrive at this point? But I think in writing my book about my path, I sort of discovered this same thing you're pointing out, which is like, whoa, I don't, I can't, I can explain it in one way and like show you what I was feeling and thinking at the time, but I don't really know how I got here. Yeah. And I think you're right that, and it's actually a beautiful thing about people that we are so able to construct backwards narratives from where we are right now. And I mean, I had to do that, you know, when I wrote this novel, when you are trying to get an agent, you have to like tell something about yourself and they don't care about anything that isn't related to what you're writing. And so I'm like casting way back and starting to pull out like, oh, I guess I kind of always was a writer. And but definitely that's not the story I was telling two years ago when I was, you know, raising money for a startup or whatever. And so I think that uh, I learned a lot from there's this um, political strategist named Marshall Gans who did a lot of work with the Obama campaign. And yeah, I know um, Marshall. OK, yeah, yeah. So I went to a workshop uh, maybe six years ago uh, at a different job I was in um, that was about um, how to do a story of self, right? And and there's this, like, formula where it's like you start with the story of yourself. Like, the first minute is the story of you. Second minute is the story of us. So, you know, I was a kid who was picked on. We've all experienced what it's like to be picked on. And then the third is the story of now. The third minute is, so let's go out there and let's build a kinder world or whatever. And one of the things they teach in those workshops is you probably have a personal anecdote 
Um, for anything that is deeply held that you're working on now, you probably have a story um, that can that you can go back to. And there were people in the workshop who were really uncomfortable, myself included, about like, well, but what if that's not my the story? And they're like, no, 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 nobody has a the story. And probably if you picked a different value or a different project you're doing, you would pick a different story. And so I think that I both... Uh, appreciate and definitely use a lot of times, you know, single narratives to be able to drive to everything's been leading to this moment. But of course, everything's been leading to all kinds of moments. And um, I think that um, there is, uh, I, I think another like formative moment for me when I was an intern at the Boston Museum of Science, so I was like 19 years old, uh, 20 years old, um, I met this director who seemed impossibly old to me at the time. She was probably 50. And she was saying to me that working at the museum, and she was like VP level, was her third career. And she thought she had one more big career turn in her. And I remember looking at this person and being like, what? I thought you had to work your whole life to be where you are right now in doing exactly the same thing. And so I think also... um, it's also about the backward stories we hear from the people older than us, you know. And so I think that when we can query and dig in, when we're whether we're talking to a grandparent or whether we're talking to a mentor about what else were they doing or where else were, you know, if you weren't doing this, what else could you imagine? I think that so many people actually, you know, if you think about like the multiverse kind of concept, like I think so many of us are just a half step away from our feet on very different paths. And, um, and that there's beauty in that, but it's it's inconvenient if you're trying to get a tight soundbite about what you're doing. And it's frustrating if it's Thanksgiving dinner and your cousins are like, well, what the heck are you doing now, Paul? Like last week it was this, you know. Um, and I think you've, you're, you're, I mean, you're even solving this in a different way of like creating this meta narrative around the multipath or the pathless path, which is cool. And that's something I had never thought about before I uh, engaged with some of your work. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's um it's I didn't realize how convenient like just saying I'm on a pathless path would become. <laughs> but yeah, some of my um family members will make fun of it as a way of like just they used to just say oh you're just unemployed, but at least now they're <laughs> like oh you're on a pathless path, but it comes with the territory. <laughs> Yeah, and I would want to come back to what you... I think, actually, I think the narrative that needs to pull out more with the pathless path or the multipath is, like, you brought up earlier about some of the hard feelings and how sometimes jumping to something that you, you're you really excited about can feel really shitty. And there's this book called Transitions that's from the 70s that's about, you know, making big changes in your life. And one of the things he talks about in the book that really resonated for me was, like, especially Western or Americans... It's like if you're on a trapeze, you want to jump from platform A to platform B and like, boom, you're in the new life, whether it's the new relationship, the new job, whatever. And his argument is there's actually a lot of time and confusion and beauty and and heartbreak and amazing things that happen in the swing. And in the, and sometimes you swing to the platform and then you swing back before you can get all the way or sometimes you get stuck in the middle. And I think that kind of having grace for yourself if you're in that middle swing if you're saying goodbye to something um, and you haven't been able to fully mourn that, or you may not even be able to fully mourn that until you've been in the new thing for a year, you know? And so I think that having grace and and appreciation for the fact that we don't jump from path to path, like there is some, some you know, bushwhacking or swinging or whatever metaphor you want to use in between, um, and that 
Sometimes that's beautiful and sometimes that's hard and sometimes it's scary, but it's real. And if you skip it, um, you're only screwing yourself. Yeah. It's, is this the William Bridges? Yeah. Have you read that book? I have not. I was just finishing another book called Life is in the Transitions by Bruce hmm. Failer. Um, And it's sort of, I wonder if he's just like sort of remixing the book, but um, he talks about the messy middle, right? And Mm -hmm. how you can't fast track that. That one's amazing. Um, Highly recommend that. Um, Aida, who I interviewed, um, recommended that book and it's been awesome. But yeah, I'd love to shift to a couple rapid fire questions before we um, wrap up. Uh, sure. Do you do you have a path role model? Hmm. Uh no. I'll try and be brief on this. Um, but I have. I would say I have an anti role model, or rather, sometimes I think I want something, um, and then I realize that uh, somebody taught me a long time ago this strategy of like when you think you want something, write down all the things that would have to be true in order for that to actually happen. And I think that. Um, I was once at a, a mentor of mine um, who's not a path mentor, a role model. Um, I was at her 30-year retirement party from this amazing nonprofit that she started that grew incredibly and really changed education in the U.S. And I was at that retirement party, and there was a part of me that really wanted what was happening. People were making silly PowerPoints, poking fun at her, and talking about different decades of the organization. And I felt this, like, sorrow that I felt like I wasn't going to have this. And then I realized... Like, you don't want the 30 or 40 years that leads to this moment. Like, what would need to be true to get to this moment is not something that would make you happy day to day. And so I think that I try when I see achievements that are not, that that look shiny or beautiful or loving or whatever, um, I try to ask myself, like, but would I want the things that lead to that particular form of an achievement? And the answer is usually no if it involves you know, dedicating your whole life to one thing. I also um, was talking to a guy once who um, I really respect who runs a consulting business, and we were talking, it was after my last book did very well, and I was giving a lot of talks, and he said, you know, you're becoming really good at telling this one story, and if that works for you, that's great. And actually, the people who are most successful at making change on one topic do that, um, and they just hammer it for years And he said, you know, that he was too much of a dilettante and a generalist to want to be that way. And that was an interesting, that that was like a flicker for me of like, oh, yeah, I I identify with that. And I don't know that I want to keep maximizing on this one thing. I love that. I'm going to use that exercise. It's (laughs) it's so helpful. Um, Yeah. Have you been inspired um, uh, recently by any specific books, podcasts, videos, um, things you've stumbled across? I mean, I think that the two things that helped, that inspired me most uh, in the last few years around kind of making big changes, one is working with a coach from Reboot. Super expensive. Oh, wow, they're Super great. worth it. Yeah, I mean, and and if you're in a nonprofit, you know, it can, it can be more affordable, but there was a transformative, the year that led up to me leaving my startup when my mom was sick, I didn't know, obviously, that, that was going to happen, but my coach, Jeff Riddle, I mean, it was he was so instrumental to that and then the other is um um i went to a workshop put on by um zingerman's which is a deli in ann arbor michigan actually oh, went yeah, with Nick Gray. um yeah and they so the guy ari weidenberg who started it um 
he runs this one um, two-day workshop about visioning, and um, it's just this very simple technique of creating a vision for where you want to be, you know, five to ten years from now, and you write it very specifically from the perspective of, you know, it's 2027, and I'm walking with my kid into kindergarten for the first time, or, you know, it's 2035, and I'm up on stage as we're giving out these, or, or whatever it might be, and um, that technique really has helped me. And I continue to use it all the time. Um, it really helps me when I'm at the kernel of something that feels pretty uncomfortable and unsure um, to imagine myself on the other side of having succeeded doing it. And I'm often surprised by what I find myself writing about. And um, and when I've done this visioning, um, like it's shocking how fast um, I end up actually going towards that future much faster than even I wrote when I thought it was a, a totally bananas thing. So I really recommend the Zingerman's vision. I mean, and, and visioning is obviously a, a pretty generic strategic um, activity that you can do. But I, I spending two days working on that was uh, very special. That's great. Good sandwiches, too. Um, yeah, great sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. If you could go back in time and whisper or incept or plant one idea or phrase in your younger self's mind, what might it be? Um, it's okay to stand up for yourself um, and and you can be successful and value yourself. Um, and I think that I've learned a lot in the last couple of years um, from some of my colleagues um, around you know, how to be clear about boundaries, how to, you know, and, and I think that there were a lot of ways I was just always looking to please or looking to be as valuable as possible to an organization. Um, and I still, I would, there's no way I would say to that person don't hustle. I mean, I, I firmly believe that when you're young, like the thing you can offer is that you can come in earlier and stay later than everybody else. And like, um, and I think that's a great thing. And, um, I was just so scared sometimes to, um, uh, to be clear about something that wasn't working for me or made me feel disrespected or, um, uh, wasn't enabling me to do my best work. And, um, um, so I would, I would tell myself to have more confidence about that. Amazing. Uh, where can people learn more? Where can they check out the, uh, emerging crime writing and uh, info around that? Well, I'd usually say the best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm Nina K. Simon. I don't know if that'll still be true. You know, when uh, I actually, I think, <laughs> I think Twitter is going to continue. But anyway, um, so I'm at, I'm at Nina K. Simon on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and then, but my website where I feel confident I will always be is just ninakaysimon.com. Amazing. It was a delight. I will likely be hitting you up uh, for some unconventional parenting advice and oh, all the wisdom I can soak you up from you. But appreciate uh, the conversation today. It was super fun and uh, really inspired by your journey. Thank you, Paul. I um, would. I always love to support people who want to, you know, live your values as a parent and, and in your life and um, and there's a lot of great ways to do that. And, you know, we often have people, we have some friends who've said, when I want to do something uh, that my parents will think is nuts, I tell them what you did. And then um, and then what I'm planning sounds way less crazy. So um, I'm also always happy to be an example of like, well, at least we're not, you know, sending our kid to live with a 26-year-old. <laughs> and uh, um, so, yeah. Perfect. <laughs>
All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.